All right, I've got good news today. And it's not just the gospel. Good news is, is that this is our last message in the book of Revelation. Um, so if you've uh, struggled with Revelation, that's okay. We'll be out of it today. So, uh, and some of you noticed that we skipped from chapter 6 or chapter 7, I forget where we, chapter 6 last week, all the way to chapter 22 today. That's where we're going to be. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 22 this morning. And so we're going to wrap up this series that we've been through for the past several weeks in a series called Shift, in which we have been looking at and examining and learning about through the lens of these seven churches that the book of Revelation was written to, the seven churches in Western Turkey, that really Jesus was pointing out to them areas in which they needed to make a change in, areas in which they were struggling, and now areas in which they needed to make that shift, and, and, and how to go about making that shift. And remember, these churches were struggling from anything from heresy to immorality to persecution, all of these kinds of things that these churches were dealing with. And remember, we, we learned through all of this that, remember, there is no perfect church. There is no church that you will ever find that will be perfect. It just does not exist on this earth. It doesn't. It really doesn't. I've said this before and I'll say it again. If you ever find a perfect church on this earth, don't go to it. You'll just ruin it. Right? Um, you know, that's Charles Spurgeon. That's a takeoff of what he shared. Because there, there really isn't a perfect church. It's just a matter, really, in many ways, of how does the church deal with the issues that it has? And every church has its issues. Every church struggles with things. And so let me just say this, brothers and sisters. We know at Summit Ridge we are not a perfect church. We know at Summit Ridge that we have struggled, we continue to struggle, that we are not perfect, that we have done things that have hurt people, people have done things that have hurt us, all this kind of stuff. It happens. There is no exception. If you're thinking to yourself, I wish I could find a church that doesn't struggle with this, you will not find a church that doesn't struggle with this. You just won't. It what you will find, hopefully, are churches that when they do struggle with this, is how do they struggle with it in a way that honors Jesus? In a way that instead of creating more hurt, brings healing. And that's really kind of what we have been looking at. And, and, and for the past several weeks now, and this is the third week in this kind of journey we've been on, we looked at the reason why Jesus does this. We look at why Jesus just pleads for these seven churches to make these changes in their own bodies. And why he pleads with them to do this is because there is a glorious future that lies ahead for every single person who is a follower of Jesus. We know this. We know that there is a glorious future for every one of us who follows Jesus. We know that that future, hopefully, is heaven. We call it heaven. It is something in our minds that we believe is a place, and it is a place. It is a place that is real. It is a place that, is, that will be for us once we are no longer on this earth in the current form that we are in. And I'll flesh that out a little bit later on because my thoughts about this may be a little loopy for some of you. It may be a little loopy for all of us. So, because we're talking about what happens at the end of the world kind of thing and what happens after we die. And so I, I just want to just share that with you that there is a purpose that we as followers of Jesus, we hang on to this hope because this hope is real. The hope is Jesus Christ. 
The hope is the message that Jesus came to give us. The hope is also the fact that Jesus, because of his death on the cross and his resurrection from that tomb, is that we will be able to join him in glory forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Period. And we hang on to that hope because it is real. We hang on to it because this is what we are looking forward to. And so a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Eric shared with us what that hope looks like, that beautiful vision of what that place looks like. And last week I shared with you what the journey is to get to that place. And it's a hard journey. It's a hard journey for every single one of us. That's just the way it is. This morning, what I want to end with is what is in store for us. Not what it just looks like, not what it takes to get there, but more than that, let's drill down a little bit deeper and find out specifically What's in store for us? What is this promise that is being shared? I'm reminded of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. And it says this, He, that being God, has made everything appropriate in its time. He also has set eternity in there being us, our heart, without the possibility that, my, that mankind will find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. God has somewhat kept us in the dark, but now he is revealing to us what his plan has been and what is offered to us in this new beginning. Let me just say this. It's interesting that Ecclesiastes writes this, that, that, that he has placed eternity in our hearts, and yet he has kind of hidden what it is that he is doing. This whole time, we, we, we just kind of can only guess up until this point. What is beautiful about this book of Revelation is that he now opens the curtains up. And he shows us, from his perspective, this is what I have, have, have had in mind the entire time. This is my plan. This is what I want you to see. This is what I want you to be encouraged by. This is my revelation to all of you. In other words, what Ecclesiastes shared, eternity in our heart is true, but now what's different is the fact that we've been kept in the dark. We are now being brought into knowing what God has planned all along. That's the beautiful thing about this book of Revelation. It's the beautiful thing about Revelation. And I get it. Revelation is one of these books that it can be really confusing. It can be really um, just unbelievably weird, right? And cause a lot of angst among us. And we can get caught up in stuff all about this, right? Um, I, I'm sure many of you read the Left Behind series. Maybe you even saw the, the movie with Nicolas Cage, right? I think he was in it. It was probably not a very good one. Um, uh, Nothing against Nicolas Cage, just against, you know, it wasn't a very well done movie. Many of us hold on to this view of a, of a, a kind of a left behind view of being raptured and being taken up, that all of a sudden you'll be sitting in your house and one minute you'll be gone. That, that two of you will be out in the field and one minute one of you will be gone. And, and I remember seeing an old movie my youth pastor showed me. It was made in the early 80s. I forget the name of it. But um, uh, it, was, it, was, it happened to do with the rapture of Jesus. It was literally like that, right? People were just being taken like this. And just out of nowhere, all of a sudden, you look and they're gone. They're raptured. They're taken up to heaven. And, 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 and to avoid all of the bad stuff that is to come, which, by the way, we avoided all that in this book by moving right to, to Revelation 22. We don't have to talk about all the other stuff, all the wars and all that kind of stuff, the premillennial reign of Jesus Christ and all this kind of stuff. We don't have to get caught up into that because that's not the point, ultimately. That's not the point. And let me just say that sometimes we can get really weirded out by some of that stuff. And I just want to tell you today, don't. 
Don't get weirded out by it. Don't worry about it. I love what Johnny shared, that there are so many questions I would love to ask God. I love the dinosaur question. That would be a great question to ask. I love that, right? Uh, what about the dinosaurs? I have, I have questions about why the platypus. Um, that's the weirdest looking animal ever. What in the world were you thinking, God? Kind of thing. But ultimately, there are even questions you know, that people say, you know, predicting about when Jesus is going to come and all of these kinds of things. And, and, and my point about that is to say, you know what, I have questions about when that's all going to happen and all that kind of stuff, but you know what, as Johnny shared and I believe as well, is at the end of the day, those questions were probably just going to melt away. Because we'll be in the full presence of Jesus Christ, and at that point, it will not matter. It will not matter, these other questions. It will not matter. So this morning, as we come to this passage in Revelation chapter 22, let's pull the curtain back. And let's read what it is that Jesus Christ shares about what we are offered in this paradise, what we call heaven. What is it that we get to actually cling to? What is it that is actually something that we get to look forward to? Not just what it looks like, perhaps, and not the journey to get there, but what it is that we get to receive once we are there. So let's look at that. There are three things I think we get to receive as we look at this passage this morning. And, and I titled this message, by the way, A New Beginning, in parentheses, again. Again. You'll find out why, okay? But why is it that this is a new beginning for us, and what does this new beginning look like? And the first is this. A new beginning gives us the unending life in Jesus Christ. Let me read for you Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 2, and it says the following. And he, that being an angel, showed me, that being John, a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And I'm going to go on and read verse 3 here. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. Now, what does that mean? What is that an image of? What is that a picture of? Maybe some of you already know what that is a picture of. Perhaps it is a picture of the Garden of Eden, as we read in Genesis 1. That once again, we are now reading once again here at the end of the scriptures in Revelation 22, is that we have this beautiful imagery of this tree of life, and out of it, in, in, from the throne of God himself, flows this river of life that is just unending life, and on this tree is, is fruit, 12, that, that bears fruit, 12 you know, months out of the year. In other words, it continues to bear the fruit of life. In other words, we will never have to experience that death again. And if you remember, going all the way back to Genesis, this is a complete change over what was in Genesis in the garden there, and that there were two trees, weren't there? There was the tree of life, and there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What do you see is no longer here in this garden? The knowledge of good and evil. That tree no longer exists. It doesn't need to exist anymore. It is now gone. And the one tree we could not eat of, the one tree out of all of it, and by the way, I think, I've, I've thought about this. Adam and Eve were in the garden. They had two trees there, the one of the tree of life and the other the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They could have eaten of the tree of life, 
and live forever. But instead, they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I'm thinking, I don't know, maybe I might have made that choice. I don't know. But nonetheless, I find that very interesting that out of the two options they had, they chose the one that would give them death instead of the one that would give them life, which is really interesting. And now we fast forward, and what we find now is that in this garden is no longer that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but now is only the tree of life. And we get to eat of that tree all the time. We have unending life in Christ. And what is just as important here is not what's in this garden, but what's not in this garden. Not only is the tree of knowledge of good and evil not in this garden, but guess what else is not in this garden? The curse. The curse. There is no more curse in this garden. In other words, the curse that God gave to Adam and Eve as a result of their disobedience. And he told Adam that, you know what, you're going to have to toil hard now to get the land to produce food for you to eat. And he told the woman, you're going to experience pain in childbirth as a result of your disobedience. And there will be enmity between man and woman. And there will also be enmity between man and creation itself. That curse is now gone. It no longer exists. It is absolutely in the past. We have unending life. Period. Unending life. That is the beautiful thing about what's in this garden. And I don't know about you, but sometimes that vision is absolutely captivating and has captivated people for centuries. Thomas Aquinas, who perhaps was the most important theological figure in the Catholic Church, he wrote an historic work called the Summa Theologica. It's a massive work. It's a massive work. 38 uh, trustees, 3,000 articles, 10,000 objections. Thomas tried to gather into one coherent whole all of truth. And it was an enormous undertaking. But then something happened on December 6th, 1273. Thomas abruptly stopped his work on this. What happened is that while celebrating Mass, in the chapel of St. Thomas, he caught a glimpse of eternity. And suddenly he knew that all of his efforts to describe God fell so far short that he decided never to write again. I'm wondering if perhaps this passage was being read. I don't know, but maybe it was. And in the midst, he caught a glimpse of eternity. When his secretary, Reginald, tried to encourage him to do more writing, he said, Reginald, I can do no more. Such things have been revealed to me that all I have written seems as so much straw. Firm in his resolve, he wrote not another word and died a year later. So captivated by eternity. He stopped writing. He said, you know what? I can't even put words to this. I can't even put words to this. Brothers and sisters, hear me on this. Hear me on this. What we read in Revelation is just for our understanding. Do you realize that there are no words that can be put to this description? There is, there is no graphic I can show you. There is no beauty that, I can, that is comparable to what we can find here on earth that will compare to what this is in paradise. There, is, there, there are maybe hints of it. I could give you some sense of it. But it would still fall woefully 
short. Just the unbelievable picture of this. And, 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 and trying to understand, I, I, just, I could imagine John just trying to figure out how to best describe this stuff. Trying to grapple with the words that were best used to describe what this is like. Can you imagine? I can't, but maybe you can. The vision as he's receiving this and how overwhelmed he is. And he's got to somehow communicate this to the, to the people that he wants this to communicate to. And he cannot maybe find the exact words to describe it. Have you ever tripped up over yourself describing something that you were just taken in over? How many of you have ever been on a vacation going to see a, a, just a beautiful site and taking pictures and you get back and you think, and you're sharing these with people and you say, you know what? These pictures don't do it justice. These pictures, oh, you had to be there. You had to be there to see this, right? You had to be there. I remember I was in Key West the first time that my grandparents took me there and I bought a camera. I had never owned a camera prior to this point. And I bought a camera for the sole purpose of taking pictures of the sunset in Key West, right? And, and, I'm, and we're on the pier and it's, you know, it's in Mallory Square is the place it's called. And it's the southernmost point. And so you have the southernmost bagpiper. You have the southernmost cookie lady. You have the southernmost juggler. You have the southernmost tightrope walker, etc. If you're at that point, you can say I'm the southernmost acker on this point right now. In the United States, right? It's the southernmost everything. And I'm taking pictures of this beautiful sunset because everyone comes out for it. I go and get the pictures developed and I show my grandfather these pictures. He says, Dan, these are wonderful pictures except you missed one thing. You missed the sunset. I took pictures of the effects of the sunset. I didn't actually take pictures of the sunset. It was still beautiful. You know what, I think, I, th I share that because I think sometimes in describing what this is going to be like, I think we, we miss the sunset. We miss the point. We get all about the description, the physical description of this, and it's important, don't get me wrong, but we miss the point that it's more than this. It is actually spending an unending life with Jesus Christ. That's the point. It is life forever. Period. No curse, no disease, no death, no sadness, no pain, nothing like that. Nothing like that. It is unending life, period. And it's gorgeous. That's number one. Number two is this. The unrelenting love of Christ is another thing we will experience. Verse four says this. And they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Now, I understand for many of us, we read this passage, and we think of the fact that there are those who will be of the Antichrist, who will have their names, you know, the name of 666 or whatever, right? Those, that, that identification, that number, that 666 on their foreheads. By the way, um, I hate to... From my perspective, and I might frustrate some of you, I think that's utterly ridiculous. I don't think that's what that means. I don't think at all that that's what that means. The 666 in that way, or 666, depending on what it is, I think that's for the Emperor Nero. I think that that's what it was marked by. And in those days, you never walked around with 666. That was just the, the culmination of those who followed Nero, those who reflected his um, 
uh, desires, his values of who he was. And in the same token here, it is not literally that our names, that his name will be written on our foreheads, but rather what it is more this is that we will reflect his image. We will bear his image fully in our lives. In other words, when we see each other in this place, we will see Jesus. We will bear his image. We will bear his image. That's what that means, to have that written on our foreheads. And it's also a sense of that we know who we belong to. God has claimed us as his own. He has adopted us. He has put his image on us. We are his, period. His unending love. And it's a beautiful thing. A beautiful thing that we will reflect God's image. Let me just say this right now. Every single one of us bears God's image right now. Every single one of us, whether you know Jesus Christ or do not know Jesus Christ, every single one of us bear his image. If you want to know who Jesus is, look at another person. And what I mean by that is not at their physical features. What I mean is also by how they act, by what they do, how they love in some ways. It's not perfect. We are marred by sin. We are marred by brokenness. Here's the other thing. Look at another person, and just by the very fact that they're alive testifies to the fact that Jesus is alive, and he indwelled his spirit in us, and we are testimonies to who Jesus is, that Jesus is alive because we're alive. That is not the way it always worked in those days. Idol worship was a big thing. And you had people who would worship like little statues or little wooden statues or little stone statues or whatever else. And here's how it oftentimes would go about is that if a person was, you know, all of a sudden given a revelation about a God, they would take a piece of wood or stone and carve out an image and they would take that stone or wood to the temple of that God or goddess and they would ask the priests there to pray over this, this object and asking that this God or goddess would indwell their spirit in that object. And then therefore they could take that object home and they would know that they'd be worshiping that God or goddess because their spirit was in this object. Guess what happened after that God or goddess's spirit was in that object? Nothing. It was a piece of wood. It was a stone statue. But Genesis says this about our, our creation and how we were created. God took dirt and he molded it and fashioned it. And then he breathed his very spirit into every single one of us. And what happened to us? We came alive. We came alive. We came alive. The very fact that we are sitting here breathing, the very fact that our hearts are beating, the very fact that we are alive here today testifies to, the, to our Creator that our Creator is alive. He's alive. You don't have to look any further than another human being. If you don't think someone's alive, poke them, shake them, wake them. They'll wake up. Our God is alive because we're alive. And why did he do that? Because he loves us. Why did he create us? Because he loves us. There were creation stories that existed well before the Genesis story came on the scene. There were. One story, a Babylonian story of creation, basically explained the fact that we humans, 
were created out of the blood of defeated gods, and therefore were only to be, you know, relict to um, a time of serving the gods and making sure we did not make the gods angry. Making sure we did everything possible not to make those gods angry because we knew that we were created out of the gods that they defeated out of their blood and therefore we were nothing to them. But reminders of the gods whom they defeated. We were to be tolerated. We were just there for their benefit. That's it. And the worst thing you could do was try to anger those gods. You never wanted to anger those gods and you did everything you could to make sure you did not anger those gods. That was their creation story. That's not ours. Our God created us because he loves us. Our God created us because he cares for us. Our God created us because he wants us to be with him. And guess what? In this new reality, we will. We will experience this unrelenting love of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, But we all, with unveiled faces, looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. Do you know what's happening to all of us right now who follow Jesus? More and more and more we are being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. We're not there yet. But once we get there, we will fully realize that transformation. And it will be beautiful. It will be beautiful. Here's the third one. Not only will we get to experience the unending life in Christ, the unrelenting love of Christ, but we'll also get to experience the constant presence with Christ. It says this in verses 5, just verse 5, and there will no longer be any night, and they will not need and they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illuminate them, and they will reign forever and ever. Do you know where I tend to focus? By the way, a really interesting study was done about pastors and lay people who read Scripture, particularly the, the Gospels and the life of Jesus. You know where they found most pastors try to relate to in the Scriptures, where they read it? Is to Jesus. Do you know where most lay people try to relate to? is the people whom Jesus was ministering to, right? In other words, pastors have a Jesus complex. Thank goodness I don't. <laughs> Just kidding. Isn't that, isn't that fascinating? We tend to, I say that to say this. You know, where, you know where my eyes tend to gravitate towards on this passage? Not on the sun, not on Jesus Christ, but on the fact I get to reign. Forever and ever and ever right? I mean, we, we sung that song today, and I love that song. We bow down, and we lay our crowns. Oh, I get a crown. I get a crown. I, I could get used to that. I like crowns, right? Crowns are, I think I could wear a crown well, right? Right? We tend to focus on, oh, I get to sit in judgment seat, right? There comes a time when the church gets to judge. Oh, I want to be there for that. Oh, I get to sit. Bring it on, right? We focus on all the wrong things. That's not the point. The point is, yeah, we get a crown. We got to lay it down. We never get to wear it. That's not the point. We have a crown. Yeah, we get to one time, yes, we will be there to reign. We reign with Jesus, not reign over him. But that doesn't matter. Do you know what the point of this passage, I think, is? Is Jesus is there. 
He is there in all of his glory, shining so brightly that there will be no need for our sun to, to in any way provide daylight. Ever. Ever. In all his glory. Now, now think about this for a second. Now, I realize we live in a different time and a different age. Do you realize, as John was writing this to these churches, many of them with Jewish people in these churches who came to know Jesus Christ, how unbelievably just fascinating and phenomenal and out of mind this could be for them because of the fact that as Jewish people they realized that if any time you looked on God's face you would die that Moses out of all the time he spent with God the one thing he asked God for is God can I see your face and God says to him no 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 you can't see my face because if you look at me you will die but here's what I will do I will cover your eyes and you can see the back of me as I walk past you that's all you can see. Do you realize that here we get to see God in all of his glory? That we finally get to see him face to face? You know, the only time that the people of Israel got to see God in some ways face to face was at Mount Sinai. Do you remember that story when, when Moses says, get ready, cleanse yourself for three days because on the third day we are going to head to Mount Sinai and God is going to meet you there and they get ready and they go to Mount Sinai and what do they encounter at Mount Sinai? I mean, you know, lightning, thunder, eruptions, earthquake, fire, you name it. And you know what the people of Israel said at that point? They said, oh, you know, Moses got a deal for you. You go meet with God, and you come back and tell us what he said, and we'll be good. No mediator this time. No second-class citizenship. The saying is, there are no grandchildren in the kingdom of God. There isn't. There's only children. There's only children. And we will get to see and be with Jesus and his constant presence forever and ever and ever. Psalm 27, verse 4 says this, One thing I've asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord. That's Revelation 22, 5. Right there. His constant presence. Psalm 16, 11 says this, You will make known to me the way of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand are... These are pleasures forever. That's what's in store for us. A.W. Tozer says this, Nothing in or of this world measures up to the simple pleasure of experiencing the presence of God. That's what we in store for us. We will never be alone. Ever. We will never be alone. Loneliness will not exist at all. We'll be in the full presence of Jesus Christ, seeing for the first time his full glory and not dying from it. What a beautiful thing. So those are the three things. Those are the three things I believe are in store for us. The unending life in Christ, the unrelenting love of Christ, and the constant presence with Christ. You know what is amazing to me is that this is the arc of God's story. What started out in the garden ends in the garden. What started out 
with us being able to see God face to face, walking with him, ends with us seeing God face to face and walking with him. That's the ark. That's the great revelation. That is our future. That is the story God has written and he will see it to the end. In fact, I love what verse 6 says here and 7. He said this, and he said to me, these words are faithful and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And here comes the theme of the book of Revelation. You ready for it? Verse 7. And behold, I am coming quickly. Quickly is the operative word there. And quickly is different to him than to us. Amen? Right? Clearly he has a different timetable than you and I do. Quickly. He is coming quickly. That is the theme of Revelation. I am coming quickly. I am coming. I am coming. I am coming. Hold on. Don't give up. Be ready. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. You know, not only is it the ark of all of Scripture, but in a much smaller thing, it is also the ark of this year for us here at Summit Ridge. We started out in Genesis, if you remember, under the whole theme this year of new beginnings. That was our theme. And we kind of went through all of much of Scripture here this year looking at themes of new beginnings and the hope of new beginnings and the reality we can have a new beginning regardless of where we are. And I want to say to you today, as we complete that, because next week we have a different message and then we go on to Advent. So we are closing out this arc of a new beginning this year. I want to say this, that new beginning is still possible for every single one of us, regardless of what we have done or not done, regardless of the kind of year we have had, whether it was good or not so good. We all can start over. We all have the promise of a new beginning. C.S. Lewis said this, when the author walks on the stage, the play is over. God is going to invade. Behold, I'm coming quickly. All right. Something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left. For this time, it will be God without disguise. It will be too late then to choose your side. Yes, the end is coming. We don't know when, but it is coming. And you know what? Until that happens... We have time. We have time, not much. Time to make a decision. The hope that you can have a new beginning. Even on a microcosm, it is possible to have new beginnings in relationships. It's possible to have new beginnings on a job. It's possible to have new beginnings in a career. It's possible to have a new beginning in a marriage. It's possible to have new beginnings with a family. It's possible to have new beginnings after you may have suffered or sinned or whatever it is that you have been through. It is possible to have a new beginning. And most importantly, it is possible to have a new beginning with Jesus Christ himself. And my hope and my prayer for all of us this morning is this. For those of us who know Jesus, this has been a tough year possibly for you. Maybe it was a tough year spiritually for you. Maybe you have felt distant from Jesus. I know there are times I have. 
Maybe there are times that you have felt maybe he really isn't listening to me or is he even really with me right now because this is so tough. I want to tell you he is and he never left. Come back. Come back. New beginnings are possible. He loves you. He loves me more than you could possibly ever know. And you may be here today and you may not know Jesus. I want to tell you it's not too late. You can choose to know him. You can choose to have a new beginning in your life. A life that was before without Jesus with a life now with him. And my hope and my prayers is that you will just simply pray a simple prayer of just saying, Jesus, come into my life. Save me and lead me. And new beginnings can start. Let's pray. Father, I am grateful for new beginnings. I am grateful for the fact that you have prepared a place for us. And then that promise is, Jesus, you will come back and get us and bring us to that place. Jesus, I pray for every single person here. Wherever they may be in their relationship with you, Jesus, whether they know you or whether they don't know you or somewhere in between, they know you but they're somewhat distant or they know you really well, Father, I pray today that the words of your uh, scriptures would encourage. I pray the words of your scripture that you are coming quickly will give us hope. I pray the words of your scripture that you are coming quickly will cause us to want to know you if we don't already. And I pray, Jesus, that we will know it is never too late, never too late to have a new beginning. Jesus, we love you. And in saying that, we don't love you as much as you love us. But we love you nonetheless. Thank you for loving us more than we could possibly ever imagine. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.